as I've done the past couple of Sundays, I'm going to ask you to find two books. Uh, The first is the book of Haggai in the Old Testament, and the second is the book of Matthew in the New Testament. So again, two books, uh, one in the Old, Haggai, and one in the New, Matthew. In ancient Greek mythology, there is a, a king called Sisyphus who, during his lifetime, I can't remember the details, he does something that displeases uh, Zeus. And so after Sisyphus dies, Zeus punishes him in the underworld, in the afterlife. And basically, Sisyphus' punishment is to roll a huge boulder up a mountain. Uh, The problem is this, whenever he reaches the top, the boulder rolls back down. And he can't do anything to stop it. Uh, He can't do anything to avoid it. And he is compelled to start all over again. Uh, This is his eternal punishment. To roll this boulder continuously up this hill. In literature, you, you won't find it very often, but in literature... On occasion, you will find the word Sisyphean, Sisyphean from Sisyphus. And the word Sisyphean describes an act, an action, an activity, which is deemed futile. It's deemed pointless. Why bother doing that? It's Sisyphean. It's frustrating. It's pointless. In other words, you'll never reach the top. Uh, You'll never achieve anything. And uh, what is alarming and what is extremely discouraging as we look around at our country, as we look around at our society, uh, we find uh, innumerable people who view their lives as Sisyphean, pointless. And what is even more alarming, startling, and discouraging is that we find innumerable Christians who increasingly so view their lives as Sisyphean, frustrating, pointless, and they're not sure what the point is anymore. And so why should I battle with sin? Why why should I continue to battle with sin? Guess what? I'm not making any progress. Uh, From where I'm sitting anyway, from my vantage point, there is not any visible, there is not any identifiable progress. Why bother at Sisyphean? I'm rolling this boulder up a hill daily just to wake up in the morning and see it back in place at the bottom. I need to start all over again. Pointless. Why do I bother staying in this marriage? Uh, We don't get along. We haven't gotten along in years. And, you know, I'm not even sure she likes me. It's pointless. It's Sisyphean. Why bother to expend myself at this job, this career I've chosen, or maybe I should put it this way, this career I've just sort of fallen into? I make next to nothing, and my boss is a chump. Why bother? It is Sisyphean. Why should I care about this country and the state of this country? Uh, The economy is far too gone. The problems are systemic. And we're not going to turn this ship around. Our our president is now waxing eloquent as to how his position on crucial matters 
is evolving. Why bother? It's pointless. Why should I even care? Why should I care about serving God? You know, I, I, I put my shoulder into it, and I, I get involved at times, but there's no visible fruit. I don't, I don't see any results. And uh, no one, you know, let's face it, when it's all said and done, no one seems to care anyway. It's all Sisyphean. That's exactly where the remnant is in Haggai's day. As far as the remnant back in Jerusalem is concerned, it's pointless. Uh, God has given them a task. God has called them to a tremendous responsibility. Uh, Their hands are involved, but their hearts are not engaged. Why? It's pointless. They feel feel like that ancient character from Greek mythology. They feel like they're rolling a boulder up a hill. And just as they're about to reach the top, it comes crashing back down and they have to start over again. And there is this perpetual frustration. There is this perpetual disappointment. Why bother? And really their hearts aren't engaged because as they assess themselves and as they assess their situation, they're they're plagued with three nagging doubts. The first is this, this this temple we're building, uh, this job God has given us to do, is pathetic. Uh, This temple is never going to look like Solomon's temple. Uh, This temple is never going to possess or attain to the same glory as Solomon's temple. And so why bother? And on top of that, mounting problems. This nation, we as a people, we're unclean. Uh, We are filthy in God's sight. And every offering we make, every tithe we give, every act of service, we realize this, and it is painfully clear, painfully clear, is unacceptable in God's sight, God's reckoning. And to make matters worse, uh, we look around at our kingdom. Uh, We look around at the kingdom we once had, healthy in days in the reigns of David and Solomon. And now we are slaves of a foreign king, the king of Persia. It is all Sisyphean. Why bother? The state of the temple, it's pitiful. The state of the nation, it's unclean. The state of the kingdom, it has, for all intents and purposes, disappeared, been destroyed. And so in that state of disappointment, In that condition of frustration, God sends his man. He sends Haggai. And in Haggai chapter 2, what he sends Haggai with is a word of encouragement. Good old shot in the arm. Word of encouragement. And in chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, it's easy to identify. There are three messages in this chapter. And it's easy to identify these three messages because each begins with a specific date. And so we have date number one in verse number one. And so here's the first message, the first word of encouragement, right through to verse nine. It concerns the temple. Yes, from from your vantage point, your estimation, your assessment of things, the temple is pitiful. But I want you to understand this, that the glory of this temple will far excel the glory of the former temple. The glory of this temple will far eclipse the glory of Solomon's temple. And what is the Lord referring to? He's referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is the temple. The Word became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled, literal rendering, tabernacled among us. 
God has manifested himself in the flesh, in humanity, in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. All who are knit together with him now by the Holy Spirit are being built up into a household of God. They are being built up into a spiritual temple, the dwelling place of the living God. Far more glorious than Solomon's temple ever was. And so there's encouraging word number one. Yes, as far as you're concerned, the temple is pitiful. But understand this, Christ is the temple. Encouraging word number two begins in verse 10, where we have a second date. And here the concern primarily is the nation itself, these people. They are unclean. Their hearts are filthy. They are sinners just like we are sinners. And they know that every act of service, everything they do, even the laying of the foundation of the temple and now the construction of its walls, it's not acceptable in God's sight. Everything they touch, everything they do is filthy in God's sight. But God promises through the prophet Haggai to bless them. We go to Zechariah who prophesied at the same time as Haggai. We discover that God is going to cleanse them. And I took you last Lord's day, let me take you there again, because this is precious. It doesn't get any better than this. In Zechariah chapter 3, where we find the high priest himself, Joshua, standing before the Lord. It is the day of atonement. And before entering into the presence of the Lord, Joshua has done what? According to the law, he has washed himself, he has bathed himself, he has cleansed himself, and he has put on a new new pure white linen garment and entered into God's presence. And yet we read what? There he stands in filthy garments. Friend, that is you and that is me. That as we stand in God's presence, that is God's assessment of us. We are filthy by virtue of our sin. And yet we hear a most wonderful declaration. God says, Remove the filthy garments from him and put what on him? Festal robes. What are we being taught there? We are being taught that we, as sinners, are not saved by our own righteousness. All of our deeds, what we perceive to be our most righteous deeds, are filthy rags in God's sight. We are saved by an imputed righteousness, the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, just as the temple seems pitiful, here's the word of encouragement, Christ is the temple, so too the nation is unclean, here's the good news, Christ is the nation, that we do not stand before a living God in our own righteousness. We stand before a living God in the Lord Jesus Christ with whom we are made one with faith and our filthy garments are removed and we are clothed in the pure, pristine righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now he gives them encouraging word number three. And this brings us to our text for today. And I invite you to follow along as I begin reading in verse 20. No longer concerns the temple. It no longer concerns the nation. It concerns the kingdom. Verse 20. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of dominions. 
I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down. Every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Are you following the logic, the thought flow in this chapter? The temple is pitiful. Oh no, be encouraged. Christ is the temple. The nation is unclean. Oh no, no, no. Be encouraged. Christ is the nation. Now thirdly, the kingdom is destroyed. Where is he going here? Be encouraged. Christ is the kingdom. You see, what's their problem? I mean, let's face it. From their perspective, they were led away into captivity in a foreign land, Babylon. They've returned. They number maybe 50,000. They're rebuilding the temple. City still, by and large, is desolate. And they're standing around looking at themselves saying, well, this, this is kind of pointless. This is very Sisyphean. And here's why it's pointless. We don't have a king. Uh, we remember. Oh, do we remember. It's written in black and white. We remember that God made a covenant with our king, David. God made very clear promises to David. And among those promises, God declared loud and clear, I will, concerning the son of David, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Where's our king? We haven't had a king now going on 60 years, almost 70 years. Where's our kingdom? We don't have a kingdom. We're part of the Persian kingdom. We're just a little territory, province, part of the Persian Empire. Yes, we have a king. He's a pagan. His name is Darius. Where's our king? Where's our kingdom? Where is the fulfillment of God's promise? I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Well, here God addresses it through his servant Haggai. And he exhorts Haggai basically to deliver three messages. The first message is this. Three promises, I think we could say. The first is this. The renovation of all things. Look at verse 21. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth. Now, we can be quick here because we've heard this phrase before. Go back to verse 6, same chapter. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. The heavens and the earth, the first time we find that phrase in Scripture is Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That term shaking in Scripture denotes change. And so God is promising that a day is coming in which he will shake. He will change the heavens and the earth. It refers to the totality of creation. In other words, a day is coming in which God will do something that is of cosmic significance. He's going to usher in a new world order, the renovation of all things. He promises, secondly, the subjugation of all kingdoms. Look at verse 22. Pay close attention to the terminology. And to overthrow, 
And so I am, it's the Lord speaking, I am about to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. Now here's why I asked you to give careful attention and thought to the terminology. Go right back to the start of verse 22, that little word overthrow. Do you know where we find it in scripture? Way back in the book of Genesis, it's the verb that is used to describe God's overthrowing, that is God's destruction of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now move on. I am about to destroy. Do you know where we find that word? We find it throughout the book of Deuteronomy in reference to what? God's destruction of the Canaanite nations in the promised land. Now keep moving on. And overthrow the chariots and their riders, and the horses and their riders shall go down. Terminology that forces our minds to think back to what? The exodus and God's destruction of the Egyptians. So what we have here are these historical references which would have been perfectly clear for a Jewish mind, for an Israelite to understand that God is appealing to history. He is sending them back in their memory banks to remember his overthrowing of of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, His, his, his destruction and overthrowing of the Egyptian armies there at the Red Sea as he led his people out of the land of Egypt, his overthrowing and destruction of the Canaanite nation in the promised land under Joshua and the judges and subsequent leaders. He's saying, look, I'm making a promise here. Here's what I'm going to do. Just as I subjugated these nations in the past, just as I dealt swiftly and finally with Sodom and Gomorrah, just as I dealt swiftly and finally with the Egyptians, and just as I did so with the Canaanites, I am going to do so yet again. A day is coming in which I will shake the heavens and the earth, a new world order. And a day is coming, just as in the past, when I will subjugate all nations to myself, all kingdoms to myself. And yet there's a third wonderful promise, verse 23. Remember the first, verse 21, the renovation of all things. The second, verse 22, the subjugation of all kingdoms. And the third, verse 23, the exaltation of the king on that day declares the Lord of hosts I will take you O Zerubbabel my servant the son of Shealtiel declares the Lord and make you like a signet ring for I have chosen you declares the Lord of hosts now a couple of things we need to be clear on here to make sense of what he's saying. What is, what is the content, the essence of the promise? Who is Zerubbabel? We're told he's the governor. Uh, he's the son of Shealtiel. Well, who is Shealtiel? He is the son of Jeconiah, also known as Coniah. Well, who is Jeconiah? He was one of the last kings of Judah. I think the second to last. I think Jeconiah's brother Zedekiah reigned for a few years, a little bit. But Jeconiah, one of the last kings over Judah. And so you have Jeconiah, you have Shealtiel, and Zerubbabel. Therefore, who is Zerubbabel? He is the grandson of Jeconiah. Now, Jeconiah reigned back in time prior to the Babylonian invasion, prior to the deportation. 
And Jeconiah was a rogue. Jeconiah did not serve God. Jeconiah disobeyed God every way possible. And God declared the following concerning Jeconiah. Listen carefully. Though you were the signet ring on my right hand. This is Jeremiah 22. Yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life. And into the hand of those of whom you are afraid. Even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Did you hear what he said? God speaking through his prophet Jeremiah to the king of Judah, Jeconiah, the grandfather of Zerubbabel. Even if you were the signet ring on my right hand, here is what I'm going to do to you. I would tear you off and cast you away. With Jeconiah, we come to the end of the Davidic dynasty. You can trace the king's lineage all the way from David through to Jeconiah. With Jeconiah, it ends. There is no king after Jeconiah, and the people go off into captivity. Seventy years later, in fulfillment of God's promise, a remnant comes back. And now God says what to the grandson of Jeconiah? I will take you, O Zerubbabel. Please don't miss the words. My servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord. And I will make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. In other words, Zerubbabel. What was done at the time of your grandfather, Jeconiah? The curse that I brought upon the Davidic dynasty. I want you to understand that the curse is now removed. Zerubbabel, my people, the remnant, I want you to understand the promise I made to David. David, the king, that I will establish the throne of his son's kingdom forever I have not forgotten that promise. And I want you to understand the fact that Zerubbabel is here right now and the fact that I'm going to make him like a signet ring testifies to the fact that I have not forgotten my covenant. I have not forgotten my promise. But in this man, it is now renewed. And so think of it. You get into the prophets, Jeremiah, particularly Isaiah, as, as, as they warn of this coming of judgment, the Babylonian invasion, and they describe the Davidic dynasty. They describe the kingdom. They distra- describe the monarchy in particular in such glorious terms that it's like, it's like a magnificent tree, a huge tree extending its branches over all the nations. The Davidic dynasty was wonderful. But because of the king's rebellion. Because of the breaking of the covenant that God made with Israel back at Sinai through Moses, God says through Isaiah, I'm going to cut this tree down. And that's what he does with Jeconiah. He rips the signet ring from him and he sends him off into captivity in a foreign land. The Davidic dynasty, that lineage of kings, that great tree has been cut down. And there's nothing left but a stump. But God's point now is this, Zerubbabel, as a descendant of David, I want you to understand, and I don't want the people to miss this. Yes, I cut down that great tree. Yes, all that's left is a stump. But the fact that I am now taking you and appointing you as my servant signifies what? The stump isn't dead. 
And as Isaiah prophesied, a shoot, a branch will shoot, will grow out of that stump of the lineage of the son of Jesse, David, in fulfillment of that covenant that God made with David, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now you should be, pardon me, you should be wrestling with an obvious question uh, or dilemma, problem, simply this. Well, that's wonderful, that's exciting, but Zerubbabel never became king. As a matter of fact, after Jeconiah, that deportation, there is not another king, anointed king, acknowledged king in the history of Israel. There is no king after Jeconiah. And so God makes this promise to Zerubbabel that he's going to make him like a signet ring, that he will be his servant, testifying to the renewal of this covenant and this branch that will shoot forth from this trunk, all that remains from this great dynasty, this magnificent tree, that God himself had cut down. For an explanation, we need to turn to the second book that I asked you to find in the introduction, which is the book of Matthew. And I'm going to ask you to turn to one of the most exciting passages of Scripture, a genealogy. In Matthew chapter 1, a list of, a boring list of names. And I want you to focus in and pay attention to what we have here. It is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, that's made clear in the very first verse. And so Matthew records from Abraham to Isaac, to Jacob, to Judah, all the way down to David. And then he keeps going from David all the way down to the time of the deportation. And look at what we read in verse 11 of Matthew 1. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. That's when the dynasty is cut down. But it keeps going, verse 12. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. And Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. And on it goes, the descendant of Zerubbabel, into verse 13, the father of Abiud. And it goes on and it goes on. Look at verse 16. And Jacob, so this is from father to son, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. And so the Lord Jesus Christ is the son of Abraham. God promised Abraham, go back, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, Genesis 22. In your seed, singular, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. The Lord Jesus Christ is the son of David. God's covenant with David, I will establish your son's throne, the throne of his kingdom forever. And here we have from Abraham all the way through to Christ, this genealogy demonstrating that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who has always been in view. Going back to the covenant God made with David. Going back to the covenant God made with Abraham. We can go to the genealogy in Luke, and Luke takes us even further back. Do you know where he takes us? All the way back to Adam. 
that that first promise concerning the seed of the woman, that the seed of the woman, singular, will crush the head of the serpent. So that first promise concerning a coming Redeemer, a coming Savior, someone who will release us from bondage to sin, someone who will vanquish our greatest foe, the devil himself, someone who will accomplish a great redemption. There we have that promise way back in Genesis 3.15 concerning the seed of the woman. And then it is telescoped with the seed of Abraham, that in your seed, your son, All the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And then it is telescoped in this promise given to David, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so Matthew, as he opens his gospel account, he leaves us in no doubt. The entire Old Testament has been speaking, pointing to, preparing for one individual, one individual alone, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's marvelous. And look what Matthew adds. Look at what he says in verse 23, quoting again from the Old Testament. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Who is this Lord Jesus? He is God with us. And then look at what he says in chapter 2, verse 6, quoting another prophecy. And you, O Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Into chapter 3, look at what he says in verse 3. Another quotation from Isaiah. The voice of one crying, is a reference to John the Baptist. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. And then we hear from the Lord Jesus himself in chapter 4, verse 17. As he embarks on his public ministry. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven kingdom of God is at hand. Well, put it in the context of Haggai, brothers and sisters. Oh, this is all Sisyphean. It's pointless. Why are we bothering? The temple is it's futile. It's pitiful. Oh, no. Christ is the temple. The nation, we're unclean. No, you need to understand. In Christ, we are made clean. Christ is the nation. Christ is the promised seed. And when we're made one with him, we are justified in God's sight. Oh, the kingdom is gone. We don't have any king. Oh, no, understand. Christ is the kingdom. Christ is the promised one. And he embarks on his public ministry, and he makes it clear the time, Mark tells us, the Lord Jesus declares, the time is fulfilled. All that you have read of in the Old Testament, all of those prophecies and promises All of that that, that sense of heightened expectation of someone coming. Understand the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Five truths I want us to grasp concerning this kingdom. I'm going to be brief here. You'll find them in the sermon notes. Well, I'll be brief on a couple of points. Not so brief on a couple. Shouldn't make promises I can't keep. Five truths here concerning Christ the King and Christ's kingdom. First truth we need to grasp is this. Christ has inaugurated his kingdom. Christ has inaugurated his kingdom. Christ has established his kingdom. Uh, It is inaugurated at the time of his resurrection, his ascension, his exaltation, when the Father declares to the Lord Jesus Christ, You are my son. Today 
I have begotten you. We read, and it's quoted from Psalm chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, that God has installed his anointed one in Zion. The Lord Jesus Christ reigns. The Lord Jesus Christ has commenced his kingdom. The Lord Jesus Christ has inaugurated his kingdom in fulfillment of those promises God made all those centuries before to David, his servant. It's the one true servant has now come. The eternal king has now come. And he has inaugurated an eternal kingdom. That's truth number one we must grasp. Christ has inaugurated his kingdom. Truth number two is this. Christ has reconciled all things to himself. And so back in the prophecy in Haggai chapter 2, God promises, I will shake the heavens and the earth. We know at the time of the fall, a creation was subjected to futility. The creation was, was cursed. Uh, the creation is weighed down under the consequences of Adam's fall, the consequences of sin. And yet the New Testament, Paul explicitly tells us that through Christ, God has reconciled all things in heaven and on earth to himself through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has commenced a great shaking of a new heavens and a new earth. He has reconciled all things to himself. But understand this, we don't yet see it. Keep that thought in mind. Third truth is this, Christ has subjugated all kingdoms to himself. That's the second promise back in Haggai 2, verse 22. That yes, he's going to shake the heavens and the earth, promise number one. Also, he is going to subjugate all kingdoms. He's going to overthrow the throne of all kingdoms. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ, prior to his ascension, Matthew 28, what does he make clear to the disciples? All authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And he ascends the throne in triumph, and he is now seated in the heavenly places far above all rule, all authority, all power, all dominion, every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. But we don't see it just yet. The fourth truth is this. Christ's kingdom is relational, not geographical. And so the Lord Jesus Christ, yes, in a day coming, will establish a visible kingdom. But until then, in the time being, his kingdom is of a spiritual nature, isn't it? His kingdom isn't geographically defined. His kingdom is not limited to any one nation. It is not limited to any one country. It is not limited to any one political party. It is not limited to any philosophical system. It is not related to any particular movement. It is not related or limited to any institution. The kingdom of God, the kingdom that Christ has established, is relational. In other words, to be a part of the kingdom is to be in a right relationship with the king. It isn't enough for me to say, I believe in God. 
It isn't enough for me to say I believe in a sovereign divine maker or creator. It isn't enough for me to say I believe in a first cause. It isn't enough for me to say I'm a religious person or I'm a spiritual person. No, to be in the kingdom is to be in a right relationship with the king. It is the king who laid down his life for his people. It is the king who conquered death. It is the king who crushed the head of the serpent. It is the king who has ascended on high. And it is the king alone who has the authority to forgive your sin. And it is the king alone who has the authority to give you eternal life. It is the king alone who has the authority to bless you. And so the father warns. And his warning echoes through the centuries. Kiss the son, lest he become angry. Friends, there is a kingdom. There is a king. To get into the kingdom, you must first be reconciled with the king. You must first kiss the king. You must first pay homage to the king. You must first bow down and prostrate yourself before the king. You must first come in repentance. Poverty of spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They get in. Nobody else does. It is only those who come broken for their sin, overcome with a sense of conviction that they have sinned against a glorious, perfect, all good, all wise God. Come broken, weary, and heavy laden, repenting of their sin, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who are then reconciled to the king, and become members in the kingdom. Oh, friend, understand this. Do not, do not miss it. Christ's kingdom is relational. You must be reconciled to the king. The fifth truth is this. Christ, in a coming day, will consummate the kingdom. And so, yes, he has reconciled all things to himself, He has reconciled all things in heaven and on earth through the blood of his cross. But we don't see it yet. A day is coming when we will see it. Yes, he has subjugated all kingdoms to himself. You think back to the book of Daniel. You think back to Daniel chapter 2. And there we have a strange dream, don't we? Daniel has this, Nebuchadnezzar has this, this troubling dream. And he calls his, his magicians and his philosophers and he says, tell me my dream and interpret it for me. They can't. Hey, hey, that's not the way it normally works. Normally you tell us your dream and then we come up with some fanciful interpretation. Let's try that. No, no, no. You tell me your dream and you interpret it. No one can. And so he sends out his executioners to kill all of his magicians, his philosophers, his wise men, including Daniel. But Daniel hadn't heard that the king had a dream. So he said, oh, hang on a second. I know what your dream was. And I'll tell you what your dream means. You saw this huge statue. And this statue had a head of gold. And this statue had, had shoulders, chest, arms of silver. And this statue had a belly and thighs of bronze. And this statue had legs of iron. And this statue had feet of iron and clay. And, and that's what you saw, isn't it? But they didn't stop there, did it? There stood that statue in all of its grotesque glory. And all of a sudden, this stone came rolling out of nowhere, hit that statue, and absolutely crushed and obliterated it. And then all of a sudden, that stone sprung up and grew into a mountain, and it filled the entire earth. You want to know what that means, Nebuchadnezzar? Here's what it means. 
the head of gold, well, that's kind of you. It's Babylon, powerful world empire. The shoulders, the chest, the arms of silver, well, you're the Babylonian empire. Yes, the head of gold, but another empire is coming. It's Persia. Uh, the belly of, of, of bronze, well, yes, Persian empire, Darius and Xerxes and all these men, they're going to be powerful, but another empire is coming. It'll be Greece. And then you've got these legs of iron. Greece is going to fall. Another empire is going to emerge. You know what it'll be? It'll be Rome. And then you have this, these feet of iron and clay. There are going to be subsequent kingdoms after Rome. But I want you to understand this. A stone is coming. And a stone is going to lay waste to the kingdoms of men. And this stone is going to mushroom. It is going to spawn. It is to grow up into a mountain that will fill the earth. Well, who's the stone, friend? It is the Lord Jesus Christ. What is the mountain, friend? It is his kingdom. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Lord Jesus has already subjugated the kingdoms of men, the kingdoms of nations to himself. He is already seated, enthroned in majesty and glory, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Uh, But we don't yet see it. Do we? While we're there, don't look at your watch. Book of Daniel. Daniel, you go to chapter 7. Talk about crazy dreams. Daniel has a dream of his own. And he sees this uh, sea, water. And uh, something shakes the water. And these four beasts emerge. A lion, a bear, a leopard. And then the fourth he can't even describe. He just says it's, it's terrible and distressing, terrible thing. What are these things? The first beast that emerges from the water, the lion, again, it's the Babylonian Empire. The second beast that emerges from the water, a bear, it's the Persian Empire. The third beast that emerges from the water, a leopard, it's the Greek Empire. The fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying, with ten horns, it is the Roman Empire and subsequent empire. And then what does Daniel see? What does he hear? He sees the Son of Man presented before the Ancient of Days. And what does he hear? And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. A couple Sundays ago, we went quickly to Hebrews 12, didn't we? And there in Hebrews 12, the author tells us that we possess a kingdom that is unshakable. It is the kingdom of God, a kingdom that Christ himself has inaugurated, a kingdom whereby he has reconciled all things to himself, a kingdom whereby he has subjugated all kingdoms to himself, A kingdom which is relational, not geographical at present, and yet a kingdom that one day will be consummated. Let me just read it for you. No need to turn there. From Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw, this is us, the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, 
The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. It is the consummation of the kingdom. Now, four lessons, four points of application. I want you to take from all that. Let me just repeat those five truths so we're clear and you see how they flow into these points of application. Christ has inaugurated his kingdom. Fair enough. He has reconciled all things to himself, but we don't yet see it. He has subjugated all kingdoms to himself, but we don't yet see it. At present, his kingdom is relational. Friend, you must be reconciled to the king. It is not geographical. But a day is coming soon, I pray, when Christ will consummate the kingdom. Four points of application. Number one, friend, these truths shape our conviction. Understand this. The Christian faith is historical. The Christian faith is historically defined. Faith, friend, Christian, faith is rooted in what God has done, not in what you feel. Let me repeat that. Faith is rooted in what God has done, not in what you feel. Faith is rooted in what God has promised, not what you experience. Says one author, faith. Oh, we need, we need to hear this. It, it needs to sound as a clarion call. Faith is not a device for getting what we want. Faith is not a technique for self-improvement or self-accomplishment. Faith is not a means of tapping our own inner resources. Faith does not offer itself as a tool for thinking positively. Faith isn't about us at all. Wow. Faith is about Christ. Faith is rooted in Christ. Faith is rooted in objective reality. God has promised. God has worked. God has acted. God will complete. God is in control of history. History focuses, climaxes in, culminates in the incarnation, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. My faith is not a fleeting feeling. My faith is not some experience here today, gone tomorrow. My faith is objective. It is rooted on what God has done, accomplished. In his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. These truths shape our conviction. Secondly, these truths define our mission. Christ's kingdom is relational. It is not geographical. Uh, we need to hear that for a couple of reasons. Let me be quick here, but I hope I trust clear. Uh, we, we, need to be, we need to be clear on that. That Christ's kingdom is relational, not geographical. Because there is a lot of talk today among Christians, about extending the kingdom of God, about redeeming the culture, about being missional, transforming society, and transforming the inner city, and doing this and renewing that. Friends, the kingdom is relational. Outside of a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, outside of the kingdom of God, there is nothing but a kingdom of darkness. 
We do not extend the kingdom by renewing or redeeming the culture. We do not extend the kingdom by renewing the inner city or by feeding the poor or by ministering to orphans or by doing this or by doing anything else. We are called, our mission is very simple and it's very straightforward. I'll clarify my comments in a moment. Our mission is this. We testify to the king and to his kingdom. We preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Yes, we are commanded to be good stewards of the earth. And so we should care about creation. But caring for creation is not extending the kingdom. Yes, out of obedience, we should minister to widows and orphans. But ministering to widows and orphans is not extending the kingdom. Yes, maybe we should be concerned about the inner city or renewing our own environment here in Glen Rose. But that is not extending the kingdom. Yes, we should be concerned about redeeming political structures and social structures and all these sorts of things, but that is not extending the kingdom. Extending this kingdom is simply testifying to the king, and it is declaring there is a king exalted at the right hand of God. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It defines our mission. Thirdly, these truths heighten our expectation. We're caught between the kingdom inaugurated and the kingdom consummated. And so the Lord Jesus taught us to pray what? Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. It's not, it's not, some, it's not some willy-nilly hope, some vague sentimentality. No, it is a confident expectation. It's not, like, it's not like that young woman who watches her husband go off to war, this young woman with her children, and off he goes to war, and, and she hopes he returns. And she waits on bated breath, pins and needles for his return. She has no certainty he will return, but she is hoping he will. That's not our hope, friends. Our hope is a confident expectation. The kingdom has been inaugurated. We're simply awaiting the return of the king. We're simply awaiting the consummation of the kingdom. And we pray confidently, we pray expectantly, Father, your kingdom come. And the fourth practical application is this. These truths ease our frustration. And so maybe we feel a little bit like the remnant in Haggai's day. Oh, the temple is pitiful. Oh, we need to remember Christ is the temple. The nation is sinful, filthy. We need to remember Christ is the nation. The kingdom is destroyed. We need to remember Christ is the kingdom. And here we are, let me again repeat it. We are caught between the kingdom inaugurated and the kingdom consummated. That means there are now and not yet realities to our salvation. And so we enjoy the presence of God's Spirit right now, but we still struggle with sin. We enjoy the blessings of Christ's redeeming work. Right now. But we still experience pain. Sorrow. And illness. We enjoy abundant life in Christ. Right now. But we still die. We enjoy Christ as the head of a new creation. Right now. But we still see violence. Injustice. Poverty. And degradation. We enjoy Christ as king over all kingdoms. Right now but we still encounter opposition. Friends, we must be realists and understand we are caught 
so to speak, in this phase between the kingdom inaugurated, the kingdom consummated, the now, oh, and the not yet realities of salvation. And so when we feel things are a little Sisyphean, we feel that things are pointless, and we're overcome with frustration, if Haggai teaches us anything, he teaches us this. We must look away from ourselves and look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me leave you with a few thoughts from John Owen. I think this is a fitting conclusion. He says, let us live in constant contemplation of Christ's glory. As we do, virtue will proceed from him to repair our spiritual decay, to renew a right spirit within us, and to cause us to abound in obedience. Now hear this. When our souls are filled with thoughts of Christ and his glory, they will discard all causes of spiritual weakness. Nothing will so much excite and encourage our souls as a constant view of Christ and his glory. Friend, there is no other remedy. There is no other answer. There is no other solution. Look away from yourself and look to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our temple. He is the nation. And he is the kingdom. Our God, we do praise the name of the Lord Jesus this day. We thank you for all that you have accomplished on our behalf in him. Our minds struggle to comprehend the infinite scope of your plan of redemption. Our minds struggle to understand the infinite depth of your compassion and love toward your own. We pray and we intercede earnestly. For those of our number who find themselves living in the midst of frustrating days and trying times. And we pray that you would fix their sight on Christ. We pray that you would cause them to walk by faith. We pray that they might look to the Lord Jesus, the author and finisher of faith. And for the unrepentant here this day, our Father, you know who is among us. And we pray that by your spirit you would break down the barrier of every false false reasoning. We pray that you would break down the barrier of a stubborn heart. We pray that you would break down the barrier of willful rebellion and you might cause them and bring them to lay prostrate before the king, knowing that he alone has the authority to forgive sinners and impart eternal life. We ask it for your eternal glory. In the name, the matchless name of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.